Well, this morning we are back in the book of Jonah, and uh, actually I was, I'm thankful that mom and dad are here with us today. It's always a blessing to have them visiting us, and was thinking about asking dad to preach, because I know it's always a blessing for us to be able to hear him, and um, as I began to think about that, I realized that it's taken me two weeks to get through the first six, six verses of Jonah, and that if I continued down this path, we won't finish Jonah until the end of the year, and so I thought, you know... I need to salvage some of these Sundays to try and get through Jonah. So here we are back in the book of Jonah together. Jonah chapter 1. And believe it or not, we're going to get past, well, more verses than we have so far. So uh, we're going to be verses 7 down to verse 16. So when you find that, you would stand with me together as we read God's word. We remember where we are in the story there on the boat, it says, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you? that the sea may quiet down for us, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man, man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleases you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a great sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Let's pray. Father, this is your word. We pray now that you would help us to understand it, that we might apply it to our lives and be changed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. (coughs) Excuse me. Okay, well, 10 years ago, strangely enough, I I wasn't a pastor 10 years ago. About 10 years ago, I actually worked at a drug task force, and one of the many responsibilities that I had working at this drug task force is that I would work with the detectives, and we would run confidential informants. And um, one of the things about confidential informants is that they're really not the most reliable of people, believe it or not. Confidential informants are typically the, uh, the smaller fish that you catch 
and then you put them on a hook and you throw them back in the water to get the bigger fish. And so oftentimes they would try to evade us so that they wouldn't have to work for us. Um, but uh, they, w- they would not return our phone calls. They would not be where they were supposed to be. And so we would have to go and find them oftentimes. Now, one of the detectives that I worked with, he had a saying that he would use when it came to those moments where we saw this one informant was trying to get away from us and we needed him to go and buy from this person or whatever. And he would say to me, and now he was, uh, he'd been a detective for years. I mean, just kind of a, a mental picture of him. Uh, he, he had a mustache when mustaches really aren't that popular anymore, right? And he, uh, he, he, he really loved John Wayne. In fact, he loved John Wayne so much that he had a picture of John Wayne on his computer screen, and he had a framed picture of John Wayne in his office area. And he carried a nickel-plated, you know, 1911-45 Colt with stag grips. I mean, this is the guy who's like, I'm a man, that's his, and that's how he talked. So he would say things like this, well, I think it's about time we need to have a come-to-Jesus meeting with that guy. Now, when we say come-to-Jesus meeting, probably we don't mean the same thing that this detective meant. But what we meant by having that kind of a meeting was we were going to go and and talk to this particular person, and uh, it was because they had failed to do the thing that they said they were going to do. They had failed uh, to do what they said they were going to do. They had failed in the expectations that we had for them. And so as a result, that meeting was necessary in order to inspire fear into their hearts so that they would be with fear and trembling doing the things that we had instructed them to do. But when we would meet with them, we also met with them to give them a a, a sense of hope as well, right? So we would tell them, you're going to do what we've told you to do or we're going to send you back to jail. But we've got these things we can, you know, help you with your life, right? So we can speak to uh, your parole officer. We can do this. We can do that. We can even pay you a little bit of money in order to do the job that we've instructed you to do. So there was a little bit of hope that we would give with that meeting. Now, when we think about a, a come to Jesus meeting, it makes me think, strangely enough, of the 18th century Great Awakening. There was a story about the Great Awakening, and um, there was one particular preacher that kind of most people remember his name, Jonathan Edwards. He was a pastor, but he preached a sermon in this small little country church in Enfield in New England. And the passage that he had chosen to preach from was Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 35. This is the, the, the quotation from that passage. Their foot shall slide in due time. And then he extrapolated an entire message based upon that text. Now, most of us probably don't remember that or never even heard of it, but probably there's a good amount of people that have heard of the actual sermon's title, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Now, when you go back and you begin to read about this account, there was one gentleman who wrote in his diary the night after all of this had taken place, and these are the things that he described that evening to look like. He said, before the sermon was done, there was a great moaning and crying out throughout the entire house. People were saying, what can I do to be saved? Or, I'm going to hell. Or, what shall I do for Christ? And it was said that people were so terrified that they were, they were gripping the pews. Some people were even holding and clinging on to the pillars within the church because they feared that if they didn't hold on, they were going to slide off into hell says that the cries were so great that Edwards was unable to finish the sermon. Can you imagine a pastor not finishing his sermon? 
says the shrieks and the cries were piercing and amazing. It says that after some time of waiting, the congregation was still so that the pastor came up and prayed and Edwards and the pastor went down from the pulpit area to speak with the people. He says this, it was an amazing and astonishing power of God that was seen. And several souls were hopefully wrought upon that night. Afterwards, there was a cheerfulness and a pleasantness to their countenance as they received comfort. He says, oh, that God would strengthen and confirm. And he says, and we sung a hymn and we prayed and we dismissed the assembly. When someone encounters God like this, there is a sense of desperation about it. Friends, this is exactly what we find here in the text. These sailors were feeling that desperation as they were scrambling about on top of this boat trying to save their own lives. If you remember the story, let's bring us back up to where we are. You remember from early parts of chapter 1, God comes to Jonah, the son of Amittai, and he tells him that he has a mission for him. And God says, I want you to go to Nineveh. Nineveh, remember, is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, the arch enemies of the Israelites. He says, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach a message that will tell them of their guilt and tell them that I am about to bring my judgment upon them. But Jonah, as he kind of tells us later on in chapter 4, knows God very, very well. And he refuses to go. Because he knows that God is a gracious God, that he is a merciful God, that his loving kindness is extended to all nations. And so he runs away from God's call, tries to escape God's call. So he goes down to Joppa, he gets on a boat, and he heads across the Mediterranean Sea. And then at that point, God hurls this massive wind and storm at this small little boat in the Mediterranean Sea. But Jonah has gone down to the bottom of the boat and he's fallen asleep. The captain, realizing that he's got some foolish man in the bottom of his boat who's sleeping, goes down, shakes him awake and says, what are you doing, sleeper? Get up and cry out to your God for heaven's sakes so that maybe we can be saved. And so this is where we then find ourselves in the text this morning. Now, in our text this morning, I want you to notice first this honest question. It's an honest question. Look back at verses 7 down to verse 8. It says, and they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where where do you come from and what is your country and of what people are you? Now, I want you to notice from the very outset what the author is saying about these men on this ship. He calls the sailors neighbors. Now, it doesn't say that in the ESV. It says one another. But the word there is actually, and each one cried out, or each one said to his neighbor. Now, I think there's a significant reason that the author is using this word neighbor. It's the same Old Testament word that is used to speak of people who the Scripture tells us we should love one another, right? We should love our neighbors, not bearing false witness against our neighbors, not coveting our neighbor's things. Neighbor is the key term in the law that we find in the Torah. It is the word that God uses to describe all of the people who are bound together in covenant. Love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. 
You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Exodus 20, verse 16. So we can hardly uh, avoid putting it this way, that our neighbor, what is our neighbor? Our neighbor means everyone who is in the same boat with us. So when you look around your life, who is your neighbor? Well, everybody that looks like you, not necessarily as a ginger or ruggedly handsome, no, is a person that is a human being. Everyone is in the same boat. We are all humans. We are all made in the image of God. We are neighbors with one another. And so we look at this story here. The neighbors are those who are in the same life-threatening situation, fighting against the same sea. And so all of us, we ought to recognize the fact that we are neighbors to one another and to care for one another. But next, look what it says. They begin to cast lots. Almost like, bam, now we're in Las Vegas or something, right? What happens here? What is this casting of lots? What does it actually mean to cast lots? Well, if you're not familiar with this practice, if you don't regularly cast lots at your house, and hopefully you don't, then casting lots may be a little bit foreign. In, in ancient times, there, there was many different ways of casting lots. Uh, here, the lots probably consist of some kind of marked stone uh, that could be rolled or, or thrown into a dish of some sort, or, or kind of like just throwing dice down in order to, to, to figure out who was chosen and who was not chosen. So casting lots is kind of like flipping a coin to say uh, heads or tails. Who is it? So they would cast lots repeatedly, and oftentimes they would do this in order to figure out who is the guilty party or what it is that the gods wanted the people to be doing with their lives. And so they would do that, and they would ask maybe a series of questions. They would cast lots, and they would say, is it my family or is it your family? And they would cast a lot. The lot would tell them which direction the question went. Uh, then maybe is it male or female? And it's male. Then maybe is it your son? Is it my son or is it me? You know, so they're trying to, to, to figure out what the issue is. Now, this is the way that oftentimes the kings of Israel would attempt to hear from the Lord as well. But these pagan sailors are doing their very best to try and discern this unknown God to them, his will for what their lives are about to be a part of. This unknown God, the one who is threatening them with this huge storm, he's full of mercy for them, believe it or not. And it doesn't look like it. It doesn't look like he's having mercy on them. But his mercy comes as he begins to answer their desperate questions. Now, why, why are they casting lots? Well, they tell us exactly why. They say, we, we want to know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Now, what you should find fascinating as you're thinking about this text and reading through this text is that this is the second time that the term evil has been used. Do you remember the first time? It's speaking about Nineveh. Speaking about the, the ways and the wicked activities of the people of Nineveh. But now, here in the second time that it's being used, it's not describing the pagan peoples that don't believe in God. It's describing Jonah. It's describing Jonah's disobedience to God. The one who was called by God to be a prophet to speak his message. So notice what happens. The lot falls to Jonah. The Lord is setting Jonah up. The Lord is causing Jonah to become the scapegoat. Now, when you ba think back about the Old Testament, there are many similar stories about this kind of scapegoat uh, idea. We, we first see it in the law of God uh, when he, he, uh, he, he, he chooses from himself goats to be taken and slaughtered, to be sacrificed on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. Uh, the priest, it says that he is to cast lots over two goats. 
One lot for the Lord, for the sacrifice, and the other lot for Azazel, to send this goat out into the wilderness. Now, choosing the scapegoat is a, is a striking example of God's way of choosing, God's election. At first, we look at the goats in the scriptures, and they're indistinguishable. They're the same, right? Both of the goats are to be pure. Both of the goats are to be uh, excellent. But after the lots are cast, one of them becomes a holy sacrifice that is pleasing to the Lord, and the other goat is detestable. And the sins of the people are laid upon the goat, and it's sent out from among the community of faith, out of the presence of God. And when we look at it, it looks somewhat arbitrary. It almost looks like it's just a matter of chance. But in fact, the lots are the authorized means by which the Lord chooses which creature shall be sacrificed and which one shall be made unclean. So when we think about divine election, it oftentimes it looks very arbitrary, doesn't it? As the Lord, he is the one that tells us that he is the one that makes the choice. He is the one that selects for himself a people and a nation. In fact, we find this in Deuteronomy chapter 7. It says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of the slaver, of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It's not because of something that the Israelites did, but God in his mysterious divine mind chose the nation of Israel out of all of the peoples of the, of the world. And so it is with the scapegoat. The scapegoat is the animal that's not sacrificed. It's not offered to the Lord. So to be chosen as the scapegoat is to be rejected by the Lord. It's to be rejected as unworthy of God, an abomination rather than an offering to God. So the scapegoat is not sacrificed, but the scapegoat is thrown away. Just like Jonah, thrown away into the sea. So we think about this mystery of how God works and how God chooses. It is a mystery. In fact, we don't ever really find out the answers to the questions of why. Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? Why did God choose Israel over all of the nations of the earth? And oftentimes we come to this point, we think it seems really arbitrary, but, but Paul speaks to this in Romans 9. He says, has, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. It's just like that. Choosing one goat is holy and the other is unclean simply by the roll of the dice. Is God unfair to the goats? No. It helps us to understand this when we notice the reversals of God's logic of redemption. We look at Jesus. Everything becomes a little bit more clear when we look at Jesus. Jesus, the chosen one, Right? The one selected before the foundation of the world, God's chosen one, Jesus Christ, becomes unclean. He becomes the true scapegoat so that the rest of us can be then made clean 
an acceptable offering to the Lord, Paul says in Romans 12. Now, this isn't just a a sudden change in the divine plan, but it's the fulfillment of God's promises that Jacob and his seed, the chosen people, will be the blessing for all of the families of the earth. And that same logic of redemption is visible here in Jonah. The descendant of Jacob, an Israelite, who's thrown away, thrown out into the deep, so that this boat filled with Gentile pagans can be saved. It's good news, even for those here in this story, for those that are not chosen. Because the elect are chosen for the blessing of others. Now, none of that gives us the answer to why, does it? We don't get the answer to why. Why Jacob? Why Israel? Why does God call some from darkness into light? We don't really have an answer to that question. But Paul, as he's reflecting upon that in the book of Romans, he comes to the conclusion that even though it's a mystery, even though we don't understand the answer to why, he says God is worthy of praise. God is worthy of praise. He says, oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. And so in our story here this morning, the lots tell the sailors that Jonah is the guilty one, but it also shows them that Jonah is God's chosen one. This will bring about fear initially in their lives, but eventually it brings about their salvation, even though they don't understand it quite yet. So then they pose the questions. Look back at the story. They pose the questions after the lot has fallen to Jonah. Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? It's like rapid fire. Hey, what's going on? Tell me a little bit about yourself. I mean, since we're all about to die here because of you, what's happening? What'd you do, man? There's all of these kinds of questions coming out to Jonah He's the guilty one. They begin to see the storm around them. And they know for certain that they're about to die. But they want to know why it is that Jonah is the guilty one. Sometimes similar situations happen to us, don't they? No, maybe not out on a boat about to die. But people all around us are going through storms in their life. Some of these storms are storms that God has sent into their life. And they're crying out for help. They're crying out to their gods. Even though they may not call them their gods. They're calling out to the the gods of self-preservation. The gods of, you know, pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. The the gods of finance and their own pocketbook. They're calling out to the gods of self-help books. The gods of Dr. Phil and Joel Osteen. Prosperity kinds of teaching. But when all of it fails, they may very well come back to us. And ask us some very important questions. Questions like, who are you? Where in the world does your hope come from? Why, why is it that when, I, when you're going through these terrible things in your life, you have this joy about you? Friends, the answers that we give to those questions are crucial. We must not say, well, you know, I just I try to have a positive outlook on life. You know, try to have a good attitude, you know, and that helps. You know, when you have a good attitude about life, you know, it just makes things go a little bit more smoothly. We can't say that. We can't say, you know, I just try to do right by other people. I try to be a good person, try to be nice to other people, and, you know, that's reciprocated oftentimes. Or, you know, I just try to do my best, 
You know, if I do my best, then I can be pleased with the way I've done things. No, we, we can't say those kinds of things. We have to point them to the identity that we have in Christ. The fact that we are part of his body. Now, look at how Jonah responds to the sailors' questions. He gives a truthful response. Verse 9. And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now, just to be clear, at this point, Jonah is not quite as upfront as it first appears that he's being. He, he doesn't tell them, well, I'm an Israelite, whom they would have all recognized and known what an Israelite was and who an Israelite was. Instead, he tells them that he is a Hebrew. Now, from our vantage point, oftentimes we link those two words as though they're synonymous. But at this particular time in history, they're not synonymous. A Hebrew and an Israelite weren't necessarily the same people. The term Hebrew doesn't refer, refer to, at this point, the language of the Israelite people. It was generally a term that described a Semitic, nomadic kind of people. In fact, the Egyptians called the Israelites, when they were in Egypt, they called them Hebrews, but it was used as a derogatory term. The primary meaning of the term has to do with, with social status and not necessarily ethnicity. Hebrews were typically homeless people. People that didn't have a land, people that didn't have uh, things to call their own, often refugees, sometimes mercenary soldiers or deserters, but always they were, in some sense, foreigners. So this is what, what Jonah is saying. He's saying, I, I'm just a foreigner. I'm just a foreigner. I have no real home, worshiping at no real temple, serving no God, but the one who is up in heaven. Now, this may be... One of the reasons it bothers them so much. Jonah says, you know, I'm really a nobody. You know, I don't have a home. I don't have, you know, a place I go to worship regularly. You know, I, I just worship the God who made, you know, the land and the sea. And they're thinking, you worship the God who made the land. And he's making such a big deal about you. This must be a God who is the God of all gods. If he's able to extend his boundaries... See, in Canaanite times, most of the times they're gods. They believed that they were, they were fastened into this one particular uh, geographical region. So this god would be over this area. This god would be over this area. And so as you go through the different parts of the land, you would have to recognize those gods and those deities. You'd have to make sacrifices in order to be blessed in that particular region. And what he's saying here is that his god isn't just, you know, just in control of this one's little slice of Middle Eastern property. No, his God is the God who made the seas. His God is the one who made the land. So his God is the one who has control over all of the land and all of the sea. And this is the reason they begin to be very, very afraid. Notice what Jonah says next. He says, I fear Yahweh. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, this is the first time in the book that anyone has uttered God's real name. No one has ever actually said his name yet. We've read it, but it's just because of the narrator. This is the first time someone speaks and says, Yahweh, God, the Lord. And so Jonah begins to describe this God in a way that the sailors can understand. Jonah says that this God is the one who is majestic. 
This God is the one who is powerful. This God is the one who sits enthroned in heaven and he surveys the entire world. Nothing escapes him. Just like what Isaiah says. He says in chapter 40, it is God who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Jonah says that his God made the dry land. His God made the sea. God has made everything that is under heaven. And so as the psalmist says, calling Israel to worship in Psalm 95, the sea is God's, for he made it, and his hands prepared the dry land. The psalmist goes on in Psalm 33, he says, by the word of Yahweh were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the water of the sea together in a heap. He lays up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. This is Jonah's response. The one who made the sea. The one who made the land. He tells them plainly who it is that has besieged their boat. It is the God who has no boundaries. It is the God who is powerful beyond measure. It is the God who created the sea and the ground and everything in it. But then notice how the sailors respond. They ask a really important question. And God, through the prophet Jonah, gives them an answer that eventually will save their lives. Look there in verse 11. A conversion of soul. Then they said to him, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? Isn't that an important question? What must we do then? We've heard questions like that all over the scripture. The Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? How can I be saved? What shall I do? How can I make this right with God? They say, what shall we do that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. And then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. And so they called out to the Lord. O oh Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not us on us innocent blood. For you, O oh Lord, have done as it pleases you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him over into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and they made vows. We come to this turning point in the scene on the boat. No longer are people wondering whose fault it is. No, they, they know that it's Jonas. They recognize who it is and what he has done. And the narrator comes back to us and the storm is getting worse. Everything is getting worse. And if they don't act quickly, they're going to certainly die. And so Jonas speaks to them as a prophet. He tells them what they have to do. He tells them what they must do. Now, we look at this, I think sometimes... When we look at the story of Jonah, we oftentimes we romanticize Jonah. But we've already seen Jonah is not really a stand-up guy. Jonah, oftentimes we think that Jonah is just this sacrificial dude, and he's just like, man, you know what? I want you guys to live. Just chuck me overboard. You know, God, he's going to send a fish or something, sailboat. I mean, something will happen. God will take care of me. That's not at all the picture that we get for Jonah. In fact, Jonah, he doesn't show any kind of attitude of remorse. He doesn't have any kind of repentance. When we look at Jonah's attitude throughout the rest of the book, it doesn't really 
appear that Jonah really believed God was going to do anything on his behalf. Jonah had attempted to run from God, and he failed. And now his last resort, he's just going to end his own life so that he doesn't have to go to the Assyrians and preach. So there's just this driving force of unrepentant disobedience in Jonah's life. Jonah knows that he cannot escape God, but he still refuses to serve him. Now, at this point in the story, what could he have done differently? Well, he could have knelt down and prayed to his God, couldn't he? He could have knelt down and prayed and and asked God to forgive him and repented of his sin of running from God and fleeing from his presence, but he doesn't do any of that. He says, just throw me overboard. See, for Jonah, he had been sleeping in the bottom of the boat in his despondency and his despair. And he thought, well, there's probably not much difference in sleeping at the bottom of the boat or sleeping forever at the bottom of this ocean. He doesn't even have to make the descent himself. He's going to have somebody else throw him overboard so that he goes off into the deep. And there at the bottom of the ocean, then the chase will end. Then God will let loose of him. He can't even catch his breath. I mean, if God is the one pursuing you, you can't even catch your breath. You can't even find the energy to go on. And Jonah assumes that it's better to be drowned where there is no breath at all than to continue on down this path. This is the same kind of attitude that Job had when he wished that he would never been born. In his first long speech when he said, the thing that I have feared has come upon me. What I have dreaded now befalls me. I have no peace or quiet, no rest, but only trouble. So now Yahweh, the thing that he had feared, has come upon Jonah. Caught up with him at last. But Jonah seems like he's figured a way to get some relief. It means that he can finally stop fleeing from God. It means that he can finally stop fearing, stop breathing, stop being altogether. But it's strange that at this lowest moment for Jonah, don't you find it odd that he's the most Christ-like in this moment? He gives up his own life, whether for good motivations or not. He gives up his own life so that other people might live. He, he satisfies God's anger so that others can be freed and live. Even though Jonah seeks to end his life out of desperation, he, he does treat the lives of others as more valuable than his own. There's a lot of things in the story of Jonah that we should not emulate, but this is not one of them. This is something that we must be like if we're going to be like Christ. In fact, the Apostle Paul in the book of Philippians says to the church, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count other people as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So when you think about the way that you go about sharing the gospel with those around you, are you haunted by selfish ambition do you, you want to get that good promotion and so you just kind of stay quiet at work? You let your ambitions get the better of you. Or are you, are you haunted by conceit? You want to share the gospel, but you don't because you don't want to look foolish among the people that you respect, the people that uh, you believe that it matters what they think. You don't want to look foolish at the dinner table and share the gospel with people that might disagree with you. And so your conceit is the thing that 
that controls you? Are you haunted by your own dedication to your own interests? Do you really just not care that much? You're interested in your life and what's going on for you. But as far as those people out there that never heard the gospel before, it seems like eternity's a really long way away. We can't be like this. We can't be like this. Paul says that we should have the same attitude as Jesus. Do you remember what Paul says following this? He says about Jesus, the one who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be taken advantage of. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being poured and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So let us learn from Jonah to truly live as if those who are around us really are more important than us. So we find in this story Jonah, but then the sailors. Here they are, men of various backgrounds, struggling to survive, but they're listening to the words of the prophet. And they come to Jesus. We reflect upon this story. It's important to remember how God works. God always gets his way. Always. God always wins. God always gets his way. His plans to rescue undeserving sinners from death and hell cannot be thwarted. Jonah's attempt to escape God's plan only broadened the net of who God was going to save. He didn't want to go to Nineveh so that the Gentiles, the pagans, could be saved. And so he disobediently flees, only widening the net of God's salvation to these Gentile pagan sailors. God's plan cannot be stopped. This morning, friends, if you're like Jonah, running from God's plan, attempting to escape the call that God has put on your life to make disciples, he's going to use you whether you know it or not. But a life that is out of sync with God A life that is out of sync with God's plan and his work is a terrible way for a believer to live. In fact, Jonah shows us that that kind of life will eventually lead you to despondency, despair, and frustration. So don't be like Jonah today, running from God, but willingly embrace the call of God upon your life and obey him. Give up your life for the sake of others. Because there are people all around you in your life, people in your boat who are looking to you for the answers. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us as your people. Help us to be wise in the way that we share, bold in our dedication to share the gospel. Father, help us to be people who respond in faith, who don't run from the call that you've given to us, but who joyously embrace the command of our Lord to go make disciples of all nations. Father, we know that the harvest fields are ripe and ready. We know that there are people all around us who are waiting to hear of our God, the one who made the sea, the one who made the land, the one who has made all things, even a way of salvation for sinners. So Lord, help us through your spirit 
be wise, to be bold, and to be passionate for your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name.